I have the pleasure of inviting our platform speaker today. Bart Warden is the leader for the Ethical Culture Society of Westchester in New York and the executive director for the American Ethical Union. His recent social justice efforts have included participation with the Democracy Spring protests here in Washington, and he has acted with a number of several civil rights organizations that are addressing bias and discrimination issues. Bart and his wife, Ruthann, who's here today, I believe also with their son. Welcome. They are longtime members of the Westchester Ethical Society, and uh, both of their sons are graduates of the Sunday School. Welcome to all of you. Good morning. It is really great to see all of you out here today. Um, I got to say, I, I really love coming to the society, and so it's really a pleasure to be here. It's also a pleasure to have my family here as, as well, uh, and to be talking on simplicity in the summer, and to see this crowd out is really pretty remarkable. If you think about it, I mean, the simple thing for you to have done this morning was to make a nice pot of coffee, you know, whatever newspaper or whatever thing you use for your amusement to hang out. So, I really appreciate your being here today. So let's, uh, let's see what we got here. <clears throat> Barter by Sarah Teasdale. Life has loveliness to sell. All beautiful and splendid things. Blue waves whitened on a cliff. Soaring fire that sways and sings. And children's faces looking up. Holding wonder like a cup. Life has loveliness to sell. Music like a curve of gold, scent of pine trees in the rain, eyes that love you, arms that hold, and for your spirit's still delight, holy thoughts that star the night. Spend all you have for loveliness. Buy it. And never count the cost. For one white singing hour of peace, count many a year of strife well lost. And for a breath of ecstasy, give all you have been or could be. So today I'm going to be talking about simplifying as a way to experience a more meaningful life. Um, But it may be best for us to start imagining for ourselves what a more meaningful life would be like. What would a more meaningful life be like for you? Imagine how it would be different if your life was infused with even more meaning and purpose. What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it feel like? What would your activities be if you were leading a life that had even more meaning than you experienced when you woke up this morning. Right? That's the challenge that we have. And it's about simplification. One of the challenges that we have to living meaningful lives, I would argue, is that we live in a culture that is more geared towards consumption, towards abundance, towards stuff, than it is towards meaning. Right? In other words, we have a multitude of choices before us. 
Um, just um, By the way, I was going to do a PowerPoint, but then I thought, wait a minute, I'm doing uh, s- simplifying. So, uh, no, no, I, I'm not going to do that. But so let, let's do this. I'm, I'm hoping you're rather visual people. So I'd like you to join me in walking into the local shop right in Croton on Hudson in New York, near where I live, which is where I do a fair amount of grocery shopping. Well, I don't do a fair amount. My wife does more grocery shopping than I do. But when I join her in the shopping or do my own shopping, that's where I'd likely to go. And let's just get a bag of potato chips. All right? Simple task, right? Common product. So we go over to the chip aisle. Yes, in fact, an entire aisle dedicated to chips. And we look at the shelves. And on the shelves are, wait a minute, there's not just potato chips. There's also corn chips. There's pretzels. There's other vegetable chips. And there's not just potato chips that are like, Potato chips, there's potato chips with, now with bacon? Potato chips with bacon? I mean, come on now. Well, sour cream and onion, you name it, right? The, the abundance of kinds of chips in itself is just remarkable and unsettling. I, all I want is those chips that I grew up eating, you know, which is wise potato chips, you know, oily, a little salty, but very tasty. I'm very happy for them. Or even Lay's. Lay's are good, too. A little bit lighter. Yeah, they're good. But to find them in this sea of other things is already complicated. All right? And there's a reason for that. Right? And that reason is that the culture that we're living in wants us to imagine that there's this endless collection of choices so that all of our needs can be satisfied, no matter how bizarre those needs are. Right? Satisfied with stuff. Right? So if you trundle over to Kohl's and decide you're going to buy a, a nice pair of uh, briefs, for instance, if you're a guy, medium size for me, same kind of problem. Oh, my gosh, there's not just these little cotton tidy whities that I'm used to wearing, but there's all these different colors and sizes and styles and compression things, et cetera, et cetera. We just keep having this collection of things. So everywhere that we go, we are faced with more and more choices. And what they find is that having lots of choices has its complications. So I want to share, there was a TED Talk by Barry Schwartz. Anyone watch that? Barry Schwartz, a psychologist. You did. Okay. I'm going to read some from it, so uh, it, it may be some. Uh, so this is the, the, the talk was the paradox of choice. And so he says, you know, there's an official dogma in Western industrial societies, and it's this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom. The way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. And the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. Sounds great, doesn't it? Thing is, all this choice has negative effects on people. So the first effect is, paradoxically, having lots of choices is paralyzing. Right? When you're standing in front of that array of chips, how do you know which one is going to be the right bag of chips for you? Um, and they found that one of the things, that, that, uh, there's a study of um, people, uh, companies that were giving retirement account options to people. And so they had this data of like thousands and thousands of companies that were, were doing this. And what they found is that the more options the companies offered their employees for the retirement options, the fewer people made selections. All right? Because how do you select? You don't understand what these things are in the first place unless you're like really into it and then you already have your retirement account. 
But what they found is the more they had, the more stressful it was for people. They weren't making choices. They were putting it off. Right? By the way, a lot of employers now will have you have to opt out of a plan. Did anyone have that? Uh, my, my employer just started that, which is pretty cool. Uh, because what they find is if you have to opt out, people are not inclined to choose opting out either. And so they have a higher rate of people actually having retirement accounts than they would have had otherwise. All right, so one effect is that you get paralyzed. All right? Uh, another one is that uh, even if you do make a choice, you're more likely to end up less satisfied with a choice if you have a lot of options than if you only had a few. If you have a lot of options and you make a choice, you're less likely to like that choice after you get it. You've heard of buyer's remorse, right? Well, uh, what, uh, uh, what the psychologist here is saying is um, what happens is this. Uh, the imagined alternative induces you to regret the decision you made. Right? In other words, I could have had that bag of chips that had that extra little bit of like, black pepper on it, and I didn't choose that, right? That kind of thing. Uh, and the regret subtracts from the satisfaction you get out of the decision you made, even if it was a good decision. Right? The more options there are, the easier it is to regret anything at all that's disappointing about the option that you do have. Right? Those little niggling disappointments will now stand out because you were aware there were options. You could have done better. Um, they also said there's opportunity costs here. The attractive features of alternatives that you reject might make you less satisfied with the one you've chosen. Um, in addition to that, the other thing that makes life miserable is now that we have more choices before us, our expectations are also raised. All right? How many of you have uh, smartphones? Just about everybody, right? Now, 10 years ago, how many of you had smartphones? Oh, a couple. All right? You've got early adopters. Most of us had various cell phones of different kinds, right? And they were really cool. Weren't they when they came out? It was amazing. You could text on them. You could take pictures. Astounding. All right? But over the course of time, they became like dinosaurs because we had more and more options and we were expecting more to come out of it. And so now when you go to buy a phone, because these companies have realized there's money to be made and all kinds of features, you have this huge plethora of things to choose from. Right? It's very difficult to choose the right ones. Plus, when your phones start acting up now, you get annoyed. Right? We're on the way here today. Uh, my GPS tried to get me on a wrong exit. It was saying one thing, which was correct, and then showing a picture of another thing, which was not correct. I was almost late. It was terrible. Now, mind you, 20 years ago, I would have been looking at a map, <laughs> trying to, you know. But that doesn't matter. My expectations now are higher, right? More room for disappointment. Right? So uh, what Schwartz says, by the way, is that the key to happiness is low expectations. All right, just lower it, lower it, settle, settle as soon as you can. <laughs> and there's one additional thing that uh, Schwartz points to, and that is this. Um, when you only have a few things to choose from and you don't like what you get, you blame the manufacturer. You know, this wasn't a very good product. Right? When you have a lot of choices and a lot of features to choose from, you blame yourself, right? Because you could have done better. You could have chose... 
X, and it would have been better. All right? So by having all these choices, we've managed to make ourselves pretty darn miserable. Right? So we're more anxious, we're more depressed, we have less hopefulness about life. Our, our relationships are probably more strained and less close than they might have been without having all these extra choices. Right? Because you're even making choices at home. I don't know about you, when I'm watching television at night now, I'm also checking Facebook and maybe, you know, a couple other things on my phone while watching TV, sitting next to my spouse who's doing the same thing on her phone, right? And we're chatting too. All these things happen. But these things are making it harder for us, I think, to just have a really dedicated moment of loveliness. Let's remember that poem. The moment of loveliness, that ecstasy of really appreciating quality of life that sticks with us and helps us feel so happy to be alive. And I wish that was all about the problems with like having all the choices and everything else, but let's not forget that the very weight of our things has a lot of unfortunate, um, shall we say, adverse effects as well. Um, I remember reading uh, Henry David Thoreau uh, kind of was pointing this out. He says, you know, if you imagine that your possessions were actually in your backpack, that's probably a good way to think about how they weigh on you even when you're not at home, right? Because when you're not home with your stuff, you're either out earning money so that you can hold on to your stuff or you're earning money so you can get more stuff or something's happening where you're worried that somebody might be taking your stuff, one way or the other, it weighs on us, and it takes a lot of our time and attention to get it, to keep it, and to throw it away even, right? Um, do people watch the story of stuff? Anyone want to see that video? If you haven't watched it, go ahead and watch it. It's, it's really, it's scary. It, it is. But um, one of the things that she talks about is that there's a whole system in place and at every point in the system it's just deadly for the economy and often deadly for the human being as well in terms of our sense of self and our presence so right but i'm talking about simplicity today so i thought i would talk a little bit about my own personal simplicity um are are people familiar with the tiny house tiny house tiny house i do not live in a tiny house i live in a three-bedroom side hall colonial um in a suburb and uh, so what I'd like you to do is go with me uh, into my house a little bit so you can get a little bit of a better picture about what we're talking about here with my personal simplicity. All right, so uh, let's, we'll come up the stairs and we'll get to the front door and open it into the porch and you can see where there's like stuff in there, uh, like the door that I was hoping to put on the bathroom and didn't quite fit so that's still sitting there waiting to go up and all the recycling stuff and uh, some old furniture and things like that. Um, but now you notice that the dogs are at the door. We have three dogs, three rescues, and they are pounding at the door trying to get to whoever is trying to get in, which happens to be us. It'll be right. They don't bite. They're kind of annoying in their own way, but they're okay. All right? But we'll walk in. What I want you to do is go directly upstairs so you don't see the state of our kitchen um, on, on en route. Sorry, but it's true, and it's mostly me. Um, but where I really want you to go is into my very bedroom to see my closet. All right, so come on up the stairs with me, and uh, it's right at the top. And then a left to the second door, and then turn to the right, and you can look. And so the former owners, in their wisdom, realized that a closet 
was a much more important thing to have than a radiator. <laughs> so our bedroom has no source of heat in it, um, but it's got a closet. And I can tell you they made the right choice. It's a lot easier to throw a few blankets on than it is to find a place for your stuff. So we have one closet that's reasonably wide. Um, and I have found a way to have more than half of it by um, not just stuffing things in really strategically this way, but there's a, a little rim around the top, and so I can hang things from there as well. So I have kind of a two-layer effect going in there, because we don't have doors on the closet. Right? Um, and so what I'd like you to do is kind of part through these a little bit uh, and go past the, uh, the T-shirt that was given to me by the soccer team that I was assistant coach for in 1978, and, um, or whenever it was, you know, and then past the, uh, the, the, the clothing that I've actually never worn in 14 years, um, but is still in the closet, to the tie rack. And I'd like you to look at this tie rack because it's got probably 100 ties on it. A hundred, easily. I mean, it's just so stuffed, and it's very heavy, I've got to say. I'm not liking holding it right now. And it's got this mix of stuff, right? Because here's the thing. I have a lot of stuff, but I'm not such an avid shopper, but I'm a very poor throw-awayer. So I have things that have been just sitting there, things that I've never worn, things that I will never would wear, um, but were given to me. And so I, I can't throw them away, and I can't give them away, so into the closet they go, all right? This is my tie rack. Now, this tie I'm wearing, by the way. So that's one of the ones that's not on the 100 on there. Um, and I actually do wear ties, and I like ties. Ties are great. I'm, I'm happy for them. What I probably don't need, though, is this whole collection. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, you have closets, too. My guess is you, a few of you at least probably have some closets that maybe aren't as dreadfully bad as mine, but at least have enough stuff in them that you can get the picture here, which is we have so much stuff Sometimes it's hard to see the valuable stuff through it, right? We wind up collecting so many things. Sometimes it's hard to see what we really think we care about because it's obscured by all this stuff and all this worry about stuff. But how do you start paring away? How do you start letting go of things so that you start seeing a little clarity and start having a vision of some things that would be building up a greater sense of meaningfulness about your life. Well, I have two examples that I've been working on. One has to do with work, and the other has to do with diet. Um, And work was a little bit easier, so I'm going to go with that one first. Um, You know, I I just started my 31st year working for a community mental health center called the Guidance Center of Westchester in, uh, in New York. And, uh, and so I've been through a lot of different positions here. Actually, the irony here is um, the uh, executive director sends out a monthly thing, and on that uh, monthly note, it's uh, notes from the executive director, uh, on the bottom is this thing about staff anniversaries. And so in May, I had my 30th anniversary. My younger son now works for the Guidance Center of Westchester. He had his first anniversary at the same time. So there we were together, dad and lad. It was really fun. Anyway, be that as may, I've been working there 30 years now, and I've had all these different positions. Right? So I started out uh, doing direct care with uh, individuals with psychiatric disabilities in a day 
treatment program. And then I became the assistant director of that program, and then the director of that program, and then the director of a couple of different programs together. And then I became an assistant director, and an associate director, and a deputy director. And so all this time, you know, 30 years, yeah, you got to figure you're going to get a few changes in your life. The thing is this. Are people familiar with the Peter Principle? Peter Principle, right? You rise to the level of your incompetence. Um, I'm a living example of this um, because one of the things I noticed was as I moved into the upper echelons of administration, and deputy director, by the way, is, is kind of like assistant principal. If you've ever been in a school system, assistant principal is the one who uh, carries the stick you know, and does all the punishments. So the deputy director is the person who shows up with the HR person and everyone jumps under their desks. They know what's coming next, right? So it, it was a, a stressful kind of position and one that was calling on skills that I was not good at and did not enjoy. And so it was obscuring my sense of uh, meaning and purpose in the work, right? Because a mental health agency is there to help people. Right? Not to make people miserable, not to make people lose their jobs, not to uh, cause all kinds of sturm and drang. You're there to really help with healing and recovery. And this was not doing it for me. Right? Now, fortunately, um, an opportunity arose. And that opportunity was actually uh, what I'm doing right now. Executive director for the American Ethical Union was a spot that was coming on. And it was a part-time thing, but you know what? It was coming at the right time. And it was the right kind of thing. So taking on a third job is actually an act of simplification. Why? Because when we're looking to pare back the things that we would do most well to pare back first are those things that interrupt our capacity to have meaningful life. So things like being in a position to be firing people and bossing people around, I happen to notice was really interfering with my sense of purposefulness. But being in a position where I was called to serve, to be helpful, to do things that would be generating a sense of, of kindness and help, that is excellent, right? You don't, and if you can devote more time to that, so much the better. It simplifies your life because it removes a rather cantankerous and difficult aspect of life, and that is doing something that you really hate and don't value. Now, the second thing that I got engaged with um, had to do with food. So I've been a vegetarian for, I don't know, coming on 20 years, I guess, at this point. Um, but I was a harm reduction vegetarian. Anyone harm reduction vegetarian in the room? Anyone uh, familiar with substance use uh, treatment? Uh, so one of the programs I oversaw was a methadone program, and they're really big for harm reduction because what they find is the people that are coming for methadone are probably using drugs. Duh, right? I mean, that's what people who use drugs do is they use drugs. And okay. Um, but if you can help people use a few fewer drugs or spend more time outside of using drugs or do other kind of things and start reducing the impact of the harmful behaviors, chances are pretty good that you can get onto a road to recovery and that things will work out considerably better than if you don't follow that path. So harm reduction has to do with finding out those things that can reduce the impact of a particular 
behavior or whatever, um, and, and go with that as your way to go forward. So harm reduction vegetarian, I, I may have made the term up, so don't feel like it's uh, bad. Um, harm reduction vegetarian says, you know what, um, I really want to eat fewer animals, right? Um, I'm kind of environmentally interested, and so I know that agriculture is problematic, and I really don't particularly care about killing, care to kill animals, um, and so I would like to lead this, this life. I'm also aware, though, that I live in a world that is not particularly friendly to vegetarians. Um, and so it's not unlikely that I'll be invited to somebody's house and they won't have prepared for me. And so then I'm either at a point of saying, well, I just won't eat or um, do something that would make the person feel bad, that they didn't take my needs into account or whatever. So when it come, push comes to shove, I'll eat the meat, right? Because I feel it's more important to have relationship and to be into that than it is to follow this particular dietary path. Likewise, I hate to see things thrown out. So if there are things in danger of getting tossed, I'm going to eat them. I mean, it's just compounding the problem to, like, throw something away, right? I mean, if it was valuable in the first place, to throw it away is that much worse. So I, I, I want to do that. So I was going along as a harm reduction vegetarian pretty much with that incident. Um, and it was working out pretty well because I happened to love cheese and I like yogurt and I like eggs and I was eating all those things. And, uh, and then on February 12th, which was a Friday night, um, or was it 5th? February 5th was a Friday night. First Friday movie. I watched the movie Cowspiracy. Anyone see Cowspiracy? If, if you're thinking about being vegan, um, go ahead and watch it. If you think being vegan is going to ruin your life and that you're going to kill yourself if you do that, you may want to take a break. So uh, Caspiracy looks at how um, the uh, ag- business of agriculture is ruining the world, just ruining the world, um, and contributing more greenhouse gases than all of our fossil fuels combined. Right? Uh, and ruining estuaries. And, and that's all on top of the already bad stuff about you know, uh, destroying crops because some of the crops are now being uh, uh, generated just to feed farm animals and all those kind of stuff. It's just really terrible. And so by the end of watching that movie, I realized that I was going to go vegan. So vegans, of course, don't eat any animal products whatsoever. Uh, so that no cheese, no milk, no yogurt, no butter... Um, number of ice cream, a number of things there. So I really found a way to use a lot of um, other kinds of pseudo meats and things like that to make my life work pretty well. Um, but the vegan is a lot, lot harder. So it's simple, right? But simple is not always easy. So my advice to you, if you're thinking to go simple, is to be clear on what the simplicity is for. Because you can throw away all your stuff, you can quit your job, you can just hang out someplace, you can live a very simple life. But that might be just really boring. right? It might really just be aimless and have nothing for you. What are you doing it for is the big question. Right? And i got to say, that's the only part that's making veganism uh, palatable i got to say, I miss the cheese. I don't know what's going on there. They can't seem to get a good cheese going without using animal products, but it just doesn't seem to be working. And I know people make suggestions about it. I've tried many. I'll keep trying them, and I'm, it's not going to sway me, but it's just one of those things. The thing is this. 
finding something that gives me a point of reference to say I'm doing pretty much as much as I can to forward something I care about brings a sense of meaningfulness to me and makes it worthwhile. Finding that thing that you care about and associating that with your behavior is the single biggest key, to my mind, to making it work and to finding a way to have